Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. episode of Mostly Books Meets, I'm speaking to debut author Rosie Andrews. Rosie's much-anticipated debut novel, The Leviathan, was published on the 3rd of February. Historical fiction based in the 17th century, the book has already received rave reviews, with comparisons being made to novels such as The Essex Serpent, The Mermaid and Mrs Hancock, and The Binding. Rosie, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to meet you today. Obviously, we're going to talk a lot about your new book. But before I do that, I'd just like to go back to your childhood, just to get a little bit more information about you. So I understand you grew up in Liverpool and you're one of 12 children. Is that correct? (laughs) That is correct. Yes, I grew up in Liverpool. Um, I have one brother and I have 10 sisters. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Which everyone always wants to know about. (laughs) Yeah, I was just about to say, tell me more. I mean, first of all, your brother, my goodness, surrounded by all those women, quite overwhelming. <laughs> it must have been. It must have been overwhelming. And we, we do talk about it quite a bit because obviously I can't imagine being the one, if you like, I can't imagine having 11 brothers. You can only imagine your own experience in some ways, can't you? But um, yes. So to tell you a bit more about what that was like, I am the third of the 12. So I have, um, it goes me and then my brother and then a whole group of sisters on top of that. And, um, you know, it was kind of like, in a way, living in a little village of your own. There are so many personalities because it stretches over quite a long time. Most of my sisters are a lot younger than me. It's almost as though there's a kind of intergenerational relationship sometimes at the same time as a sibling relationship, which can be interesting in terms of who remembers what and how. So who yeah. stole whose toys, <laughs> how, how that particular fight went. So there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of shared culture. It's almost like a kind of mini culture, having a family of that size. It was very unusual, even in Liverpool at that time, to be in such a large family. So I had lots of friends at school who came from families of three or four children, some who came from slightly larger families. But even at that time, in a place like Liverpool, where there are lots of people who, like us, were from Catholic families, it was considered very unusual. Now, what's equally maybe even more unusual is that my mum is also one of 12 children. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Rather a large extended family. Massive. So there there are cousins everywhere. One of the things or the most enduring memories of, of being young at that time was going to family parties and it was almost that there were just children everywhere. And it was brilliant, you know, it was so nice. So my, my grandma passed away before I was born, but my grandpa had this huge family of lots of very different people, lots of diversity in there, but basically a massive family of were once Irish Catholics running around in, in Liverpool in a tiny little house. Very unusual. 
It feels like something out of an historical novel. It really does. Mm. I mean, what, what an amazing way to grow up. And you, you must have never, you know, been on your own. You must have always had somebody to play with. And, um, you know, how did that work in the house? I mean, how big was your house? It wasn't big. So we, we were not uh, a well-off family. We lived in a council house. Um, my So my dad wasn't around very much. So my mum struggled. And in reality, you know, I, I remember it as being just extremely busy and noisy and fantastic in some ways and not so fantastic in other ways. You know, I'm I'm a writer and a reader and a bit of an introvert at heart, as I imagine a lot of the people who you interview probably are. Um, So the feeling of never really having much private space or much of the time to um, really delve into your own interests or even to have things that were just yours, I suppose, was one of the downsides to having such a massive family. That's then completely counterbalanced, if you like, by, as you say, always having somebody there, having someone to talk to, never feeling as though you're alone. You know, and um, I have one daughter, and so her experience is likely to be so much the opposite of that. I think it would be really interesting in the future to talk to her about how that was and see if we can try and understand each other's experiences. That's so true. <laughs> so you talk, you're obviously a reader from a young age, from what you said there. Yeah. Do you always remember books being part of your life or is there a point mm. where they suddenly appeared? I always remember them as being part of my life. Um, I remember when we lived in the first house that I lived in. I don't remember that I could read. I was about three. But I remember one of the things I got into trouble for was taking one of my mum's books that belonged to my grandpa before her and uh, putting my name in it and insisting that it was mine in a big green felt-tip pen. (laughs) And I called it my hard book because I couldn't read it. So I think I must at some point have been reading at around three or four and just loved it from then on. I have a, a very close friend who's been my friend for many years. and. When I used to go to her house when we were young, I wouldn't do the things that she wanted to do. So I wouldn't do the rollerblading or the playing with the dolls or the things that she wanted a friend to come around to her house for. <laughs> I'd steal her books and, and uh, hide in her bedroom and try and read anything that I didn't have at home. <laughs> She's like, right, I'm glad you came over. <laughs> you can imagine she was thrilled. <laughs> so what was the first book you remember reading? Oh, good question. Um actively remember is is hard I remember one that I received when I was seven and that was uh, I was furious I was absolutely furious my mum will listen to this at some point because it was a book of excerpts from classical children's fiction so it had things from The Wind in the Willows from Black Beauty and when I realised that the stories didn't carry on that I only had a chapter oh I was raging um, I still remember it now <laughs> And obviously, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. So my mum bought me what she could afford to buy me. And I was pleased and I showed that I was pleased. But at that point, I was very, I was like, I need to finish these stories. So I remember going to the library and trying to find some of them. And some some were given to me as gifts. So I, I remember that one. I was a massive uh, fan of any Mallory Towers or St. Clair's or Enid Blyton that I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. I've actually brought along, because it was mentioned that I should bring physically some books to talk about that you can see. I've got some of my old Enid Blyton's, but I've also got these new ones. <laughs> nice <to get> <laughs> so, five go parenting. <laughs> I have the satirical um, Enid Blyton that I absolutely love. But I loved anything to do with boarding school, anything to do with magic. So I remember The Magic Faraway Tree very well, those sorts of books. When I was probably below 10, 
they were probably my favourites at that point. Yeah, I don't know if you were the same. I, I, I love the uh, Mallory Towers and Sinclair's books and I always felt like boarding school must be the most exciting thing in the world and like to be able to go would just be absolutely amazing. That's what I thought. And, and I think it probably reflects the fact that I was quite used to sharing a room. So none of that would have phased me. But we, the, the kind of midnight feasts and the pranks. And I think what I developed at that point was a kind of enjoyment of a quite formulaic tale. And I know that writers often want to, and, and probably should be original, but I do and always have enjoyed something where I kind of know where it's going as well. So the thing that I liked about Enid Blyton was that you knew there was a very reliable structure where you were moving towards a crisis point alongside some people that you could love to hate and some people that you could love to back. And there were some lessons at the end. And I kind of enjoyed that about um, all of the boarding school series, I think, and the mysteries. Yes, absolutely. They were fantastic. How did you discover those books? I mean, you talked about the fact that the classical fiction you discovered through the library. Is that the same with the Mallory Towers and St. Clair's? Is it, was it all through the library or were you, did you find them some other way? We were given quite a lot of them. Um, I think one of the things when you are in a big family is that because it almost feels as though we had all the toys and books in the world in one way, because if one person was given something, the other people would read it. If one person was given a toy, the other people would play with it. Um, and then people at that time, maybe it was a, a Liverpool cultural thing, but people passed things around so much as well. So we would get given whole boxes of books from people, from relatives or from friends or from neighbours. So a lot of things where I was just able to pick up, we had loads of books in the house. And then school as well were really encouraging of, of me to read as widely as I could. And that obviously sparks interest with you because then you went on to study, I believe it was English at Cambridge University. It was actually history. So it was a, a funny story. When I was getting towards university applications, there was a question in my mind about whether I would study English or study history. And most of my teachers were leaning towards encouraging me to study English because I was good at it. I loved reading and I loved writing, but I was absolutely fascinated by history and always had been really. But when I got to A-level, I really started to become quite interested in two areas, in, in Russian history and in English and British early modern history, which kind of comes into the novel that I've written. And so I, I actually applied to study history. And then the reason I think that people sometimes think I probably studied English is that I then went on later to become an English teacher. I see. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So when you were studying history at university, were you... I guess you were still reading prolifically at that point. I don't know about prolifically because I think the thing that happens to most teenagers or happened to most teenagers that I knew when they got to about 17 or 18 is the reading went drastically down and the, the going out went drastically up. <laughs> um, so I probably didn't read as much as I should have done. Uh, but I still did. You know, I, I remember... So a couple of the books that I particularly enjoyed at that time, one I should have brought along with me, but I think because I love it so much, I've lent it to somebody, which I think was a mistake, but it was George Orwell's 1984. So I brought along a, a couple of Orwell's other books that I loved as well. So I loved The Road to Wigan Pier, um, Down and Out in Paris and London, any of his essay collections. I thought he was just, a, and still think he was a wonderful writer. And I think the thing about 1984 that I particularly connected with is I always loved horror. This is a roundabout way of telling you, but I always loved 
point horror. I loved things that I loved Stephen King. I loved procedural sort of murder mysteries and that kind of thing. But the truth was nothing really ever frightened me until I read 1984. And I, th- yeah, I think that was because it was obviously not real. It was speculative, but in its dystopian aspect, in the realization of what people could do with power that was what truly scared me more than any of the horror that I'd read and enjoyed you know I like a good vampire mystery I didn't really like 1984 and what it was telling me but I loved the writing yeah it's a bit too it's that whole thing about this actually could happen because mm. you'd hope that vampires wouldn't appear yes <laughs> so you went on to become an English teacher at what point did you start thinking about writing was that Mm. something that you had always done in the background or well I was pottering around with writing from an early age one of the things that I do remember is I wrote a a really terrible version of Cinderella the pantomime when I was about 10 and I subjected my whole school to the performance (laughs) alongside my classmates and so I I did quite a bit of writing when I was young and then as I got towards a point where the sort of concerns of my life were more about how I would pay for things, how I would get to university, where I would work, how I would travel. Some of that slipped away. And then after I graduated from university, where, you know, to be fair, I I did work hard, so I didn't have a huge amount of time for writing. I went into the city. So I did a a job in headhunting and it was the wrong move for me. You know, it was, it was, it was a good experience and it taught me a lot, but it wasn't the right career path and then as I moved into teaching which I did via an organization called Teach First which works particularly with disadvantaged schools in London as I moved into English teaching I started thinking more about literature again and more about the ways that stories work how they are structured how they work upon the reader and I started writing a little bit at a time mainly for my classes not for enjoyment but for teaching and as I was doing that a lot of the students were saying things to me like, oh, miss, you should be a writer. Oh, miss, you should, you know, write a novel. And I thought, "Mm, okay, well, we'll we'll see. I wrote a couple of short stories. So they were just a couple of very brief pieces that I started in about 2018. And at that point, I sort of caught the bug and decided that I would go on an informal but really quite good novel writing course, which I did over about 12 months. I wrote one novel, And I really enjoyed the experience, but it wasn't the novel. And then shortly after that, maybe about 10 or 12 months later, I started writing The Leviathan. And people started reading it a little bit in feedback sessions and saying, we think this is quite good. Um, And I wasn't sure about that. So I brought along, I did a little exercise while I was at one of those sessions. And they asked us to write down um, what we would love someone to say about our book and what we would absolutely hate somebody to say about our book. One of them, the first one, the thing I would love people to say is, or what I wrote at the time, the book brings to life the turbulence and the belief systems of the English 17th century. Short, brief. Mm-hmm. On the, I don't want people to say it side, it was a plodding, derivative, snooze fest, full of inaccuracy. <laughs> and I think there was this massive gap between, for everybody who was on that course, what they wanted to write and what they feared people would receive when they Mm -hmm. did. But I was encouraged and I sent it off to some agents and and luckily met with my agent and and we went from there. Well, it's certainly not plodding and (laughs) driven. 
Like, <laughs> I, I didn't know what to expect. I'd heard good things, but um, I certainly found that it was one of these books that I just wanted to find out more. I wanted to know what was what was going to happen. So it's definitely not that. Thank you. So tell me about the process then. So you found your agent. Your book was sold at auction to Bloomsbury. I presume you were still working at that time whilst all this was going on. No. So I was working up until 2019, roughly, and I had a little girl five years ago. And what I found about teaching and trying to look after a a toddler, even more than writing and trying to look after a toddler, was that time-wise it became really hard. So I was part-time for a year or two. And then after that, when I started writing, I thought I'll take a bit of a break from this and spend a bit more time both at home with my daughter and on the writing. So I haven't taught for a couple of years now. The thing I'm always fascinated by is how people fit the writing mm. around their life. So like you say, you're looking after your daughter, um, you're at home. How did that work? Were you quite structured? Did you slot it in at different points of the day? Or did you say, right, this is going to be my writing time? I'm pretty horrendously unstructured most of the time. (laughs) What I found was that my husband was really supportive in realising that writing was something I wanted to take seriously. And I find a lot of the difficulty is the mental space to work things out. So the physical writing, once you know what's going to happen, is something that obviously you need some time for. But the mental space to plot and to develop themes and really think about how this is going to work or what the point of it is going to be, that is harder. But because I was able to go to some sessions on a writing course and spend a whole day actually sitting and thinking about what was going to go in this book, I found that more manageable. And then weekends and so on. And then my daughter started nursery after that, which was useful, gave me a little bit more time Mm -hmm. to get things done. And so where did the idea of the book come from? Sorry, actually, before we get there, can you just give a brief outline of the book? Of course. So um, The Leviathan is a 17th century mystery, and it takes place mostly in East Anglia, specifically Norfolk, mostly near the coast. Thomas is my protagonist, and he is coming home from a battle in the English Civil War, and it's a battle he didn't want to fight. And when he gets home, he realises that there's a problem. His sister is accusing a local servant who's worked with them of witchcraft. He's a very rational man, so quite unusually for that time, he doesn't believe that this is a possibility. And when he starts to investigate, what he learns is more monstrous, more unbelievable even than that. And he then ends up in a situation where he has to fight for his family and fight for what he now believes in. Really great premise. And like you say, I really liked how quickly you kind of got to know the main character. He, There's a lot of quite strong visualisation very early on in terms of describing his experience in the battle and what his where his head is at in terms of what, what he wants to do and what he's expecting to come back to um, mm-hmm. and I just you, you feel it feels like you know him very very quickly so let's get back to the original question then where did the idea come from when I was at university a lot of the work that I was doing not all of it because it was quite varied but a lot of it was on British history from Tudor through to the Stuart period so the kind of underlying belief landscape, the things that they thought were real, the things that they were frightened of, their politics, um, their belief systems, if you like, were things that I studied quite a lot while I was there. But that was a long time ago. When I started writing the novel, I wasn't completely certain where I was going to take it in terms of the underlying mystery. And I think that's often the hardest thing to work out. And it played into some of the other things that I liked in terms of maybe non-fictional interests. So the things that are like the sea, things that are like mythological creatures, Norse mythology, 
And at some point, and sometimes as a writer, it's kind of hard to explain when that all coalesced and came into a plot. At some point, I knew where it was going. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when that happened. And also, obviously, with your interest in history, it must have been really lovely to have incorporated that into your writing as well. Mm, Massively. So how long did it actually take to write the book? Was it something that took months and months and months or did it come to you really quickly? It was very, very quick. It was about nine or ten months to write the basic novel which is is a real surprise to me because I don't think that the current novel that I'm writing will be as quick so it did come together much more quickly than I thought it would. Mm -hmm. That's good and then at that point you went to Bloomsbury and there's a lot of backing for this book they're very very the publishers are really really excited about it we were told about it at the Booksellers Association conference in September Um, as booksellers we were told to really look out for it and make sure that we had it stocked on our shelves so it's always lovely when when you see a publisher really getting behind a title and particularly with a debut author. Obviously, you've had this whole build-up to the book coming out. Um, how does it feel now that you know that it's it's out there and people are going to be reading it? Um, it's really odd, isn't it? The idea that people are going to read something that you produced or created is a very strange one. Because it takes such a long time, because the wheels of publishing move relatively slowly, you do have time to sort of acclimatise to the fact that you're going to be judged, aren't you? People are going to read the novel. They're going to have an opinion on the novel. Um, Some of them are going to like it. Some of them are not going to like it. And that's a difficult journey, I think, when you're putting something out there that you made. It's almost like having your, your baby that you kind of present to the world. I am getting used to it. I am obviously delighted with the amount of backing that it has received from Bloomsbury. I think it's a great fit with some of the other novels that I've enjoyed from the imprint. So yeah, no, it's, it's exciting. Yeah, I bet it is. I bet it is. And you've you've had some amazing reviews of people that have received pre-published copies of the um, of the book have given some amazing quotes. And for you, you know, with authors that you must have read in the past, they're now reading your books and, and giving comments on it. How does that feel? It's such a surreal experience, isn't it? When you start to um, engage with authors, not as people, but as people who've produced this thing that you love. So I'm thinking about people who've been really kind about my novel, like Beth Underdown, whose book is out today. In fact, The Key in the Lock. And it's a most remarkable thing that those people turn out to be so kind and so supportive of other writers. It's yet a really positive experience. So these days you live in Hertfordshire. Yes. With your husband and your daughter, who you've already mentioned. So day to day now, what, what's life like for you? Because obviously the book is out there. So you're still writing. You've got your daughter. You've got the publicity for what we're doing now. So how does that all work? Well, I made this decision about six months ago to get a dog. So any routine that was supposed to develop has kind of collapsed into this big doggy mess um I have a Labrador he's absolutely beautiful but he takes a lot of our time so we look after him my daughter goes to reception so we do I do manage the school runs and uh, in between that I try to structure a bit of writing time which I do usually do in the morning and what I think of is the kind of research and strategic reading that goes with that where you want to read certain pieces and Mostly the sort of the work that I'm doing to publicise is is accelerating now. So there's a lot more to fit in. It's a busy time, but it's good. Nice and varied as well. Absolutely. 
I mean, obviously, we're recording this in early 2022. And, you know, all of us have lived through this crazy couple of years with the coronavirus pandemic. We, we're all probably a little bit bored of talking about it. But I'm, I'm fascinated to hear how everyone has coped with it. So how has that been for you and your family? How have you coped with it all? Because we have a small family down here and a big family up in Liverpool, it was almost in a way not as jarring for me to speak to family on FaceTime and to spend more time on the phone than I maybe did in person with them. So from that perspective, it wasn't that hard. My husband has been very lucky to be able to work from home. I think if I had still been teaching, that would have been almost unmanageable, frankly. Mm -hmm. I don't know how teachers have managed it in terms of some of the demands on them for completely revamping the way that they teach and dealing with all of the stress. It was a stressful experience. What I suppose I found hardest about it was not the practical, it was more the psychological element of knowing that everything was suddenly different, everything was unpredictable, we didn't know what was going to happen. That I found tougher, I think, than any of the practical side of it, because we are lucky in in our situation. Mm -hmm. Did it impact your creativity at all? Because speaking to writers, people seem to fall into one camp or the other. No, it didn't, I don't think. That's great then, isn't it? (laughs) And did you read a lot during the pandemic? Yes, I I do. I read a lot generally, and um, it wasn't something that I found difficult to do. Yeah, no, I carried on with my reading. So some of the things that I keep going back to, if you like, were maybe a comfort during the time when it was maybe at the most stressful point. So one of the books that I always say was um, one of my oldest favourites, The Silmarillion by Tolkien, was something that I found quite helpful to go back to. It was a kind of escapist world that enabled me just to forget about everything that was happening outside. I also was reading quite a lot because I was preparing for writing the book that I'm writing at the moment. I was reading quite a lot of classic Gothic fiction. So I was rereading things like Jane Eyre, things like Jekyll and Hyde, Dracula, not because they are all directly relevant, but partly because of the historical setting, which is I'm writing something set in the 19th century now, and partly because I think it just gives you that mood and tone that I really, I like to absorb before I start writing something. Yeah, it helps get you in the zone. Hmm. So what's the last book you read? The last book? um, I'm midway through something at the moment. I'm midway through uh, rereading Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, which I'm really enjoying. Bit of a masterpiece. And before that, I think the last thing I read was a debut writer's novel, Moonlight and the Paler's Daughter, I think was my last completed book by Lizzie Pook, which I think was brilliant. You seem to have a really broad taste in books, which is fantastic. Okay, so being a bookseller, I have a theory that everyone that reads has a book that has impacted them in some way. And this could be professionally, Mm -hmm. it could be personally, but I do think everyone's got one that kind of changed their life or impacted them quite significantly. Do you have a book like that? And if so, what is it? I think probably the one that did the most for me in the sense of influencing me and, if you like, even sheltering me was probably The Lord of the Rings. When I was a teenager, I was quite an insular teenager. I I found the social side of things quite hard and I found our lives were quite hard. And I found that what the kind of world that Tolkien had created did for me is it gave me somewhere just to to go and inhabit it. So I bought myself this beautiful new edition of my favourite book, (laughs) which is absolutely stunning. It's got maps. 
and I, you know, I loved it when I was a teenager and I, I love it now and I'll probably read it again and again for the rest of my life. So just what was it that made, had such an impact on you? Was it just taking you to a new place or was it that you'd not read anything like that before? What was it in particular? Mm. Well, I'd read The Hobbit, but I think what The Lord of the Rings does differently is it, it creates something that is so cohesive and obviously not convincing because it's fantasy, but convincing in the sense of the level of detail that the writer has incorporated. And something that is that convincing, it, it gives you a will to actually be in. So I was a, an absolute geek about all of this. You know, I could recite the poems, I could tell you the genealogies of the, the characters, I could re- tell you what was in the appendices, which is shameful to admit. <laughs> I probably shouldn't. <laughs> But I just loved it. So if you came to my home when I was 14 or 15, you wouldn't get a word out of me. I would just sit there and thumb through copies of of my favourite book. And there are times when that's exactly what I want to do now. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing like it. So let's go back to your book again. Let's go back to the Leviathan. Um, Mm -hmm. We've talked about the fact that the the marketing process is kind of ramping up. What are you doing at the moment? Are you going out to see people? Are you Obviously, you're doing things like this. You're speaking to me on the podcast. Thank you. is it in person? Is it virtual? How is that all panning out for you? Yeah, um, we have a few events coming up. So I'm going to be doing some Waterstones visits in, uh, where are we going? We're going to the northwest to Norwich. So obviously the book's set in Norfolk. So we're going to be going there um, to Oxford and to Cambridge. Luckily, we also have some events booked in with some other booksellers, um, Blackwells and Goldsboro, which is really exciting. So I'm really looking forward to meeting with booksellers, going in to see some independent shops as well. I was in a bookshop in St. Albans on, I think it was two or three days ago, which is a Books on the Hill, which was just lovely to talk to people whose job it is to sell books and see the way that they curate them and um so there are quite a few of those sorts of visits coming up as well. Yeah, it is lovely to to get to know the booksellers. And as, as a bookseller, it's really wonderful to be able to meet the authors. Those those visits, obviously the events are great, but those visits where you actually just come in and have a chat and maybe sign some books for us is, is such a great opportunity. So when I first started writing questions, or think about the questions to ask you. I'd written, you know, this seems like a crazy question asking you when you're publicising your first book, you know, whether you're working on another one. But you've already answered that for me through our conversation. Mm-hmm. So you are working on another book at the moment. You said it's based in, this, in the 19th century. Can you tell us much about that or do you prefer to keep it a little bit under wraps for the moment? When I'm asked about it, I tend to give a headline of it's a gothic mystery. It has deep woods, it has secrets, it has a coal mine and it has a reasonably high death count and a touch of otherworldliness, which is something that I think because the Leviathan has been well received, I think I'm really enjoying, or so far been well received, I am really enjoying being able to write something that touches on that, but is set in a different time period, one which I equally enjoy reading in and I equally enjoy writing about. Fantastic. You've got my attention. Do you know when that'll be out for the public to read? I'm hoping, um, I have a, a two book contract with Bloomsbury, and I'm hoping that that will be 2023 or, or four fantastic well it's been so great chatting to you today um, your book is wonderful the reviews that you've received are extremely well deserved and i i think it's going to do incredibly well in a lot of shops i think it will be very very good for the independent bookshop sector because it is the kind of thing that um indie booksellers like myself would be able to hand sell to anyone that walks in walks in the door so we will make sure we do that um thank you so much for being a guest it's been great chatting with you and i wish you all the best my absolute pleasure thank you very much sarah 
All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.